I'm Isabella Freund. And I'm Alyssa Sullivan. Miss America brought us together. But now we're using our voices to discuss issues beyond the crown. For the next few months, our podcast will shine a light on how the community is reacting to the COVID-19 pandemic. We interview doctors, teachers, business owners to help you understand what the future holds and bring you some kind of certainty in a world that is anything but. This is the Closer Apart Podcast. Hey, everybody. Hi. So we're finally. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I know, we're excited. We've, we've, we're not going to lie. We've been experiencing a little bit of technical difficulties, but that's yep. show business. We're rolling with it. So thank you for tuning in. Uh, my name's Alyssa. I'm Isabella. And this is the Closer Apart Podcast. We are welcome. welcome, guys. We have really been overwhelmed over the last couple of days with the response that we've received since we announced it and how many people have just been so supportive. So thank you for that. We just kind of yes, want to we really appreciate it. Yeah, we we were sitting in our homes and thinking to ourselves, how can we do some good? How can we contribute to what's going on in the most effective way possible? And we thought, let's give the people more than just a news breakdown of facts that are going on every day in a, in a press conference. We want to give you a look into what other people are doing, letting you know that you aren't alone and showing you that there's some advice for you to not only get through the quarantine, but to keep yourself healthy, to keep yourself safe. And throughout the next couple of weeks, we're going to bring on some doctors, some business owners, some teachers to give you some insight into how they're handling their new normal and just how their lives have kind of been uprooted in all of this too. I think that this whole experience has taught us a lot about adapting, um, especially because it, it really applies to everyone. Everyone is going through this together, and we have to realize that. Like we were talking about earlier, it's so hard when we're all sitting in our homes and we're saying, oh, we just want to get out. This is so terrible. <laughs> but my heart goes out to all of the people who are going through something yes. much deeper and more difficult than this. People have lost their loved ones. People have had their graduations canceled and lives have just been completely uprooted. And we just want all of you to know that if you're listening, we are thinking of you. And I think the least that we can do is stay put, stay inside, stay in our homes and keep everyone healthy. What's your quarantine experience been like at your home, Isabella? I know mine has been uh -huh. quite interesting. Yes. So for school, um, everything is obviously all online. Um, been learning to deal with that. There's been a lot of good and a lot of bad from that, but uh, always just trying to find the positive. Everything seems to be a lot more organized now. Now I think that we're getting used to it. Um, it's really interesting to be learning online. Other than school, um, I really do like to go outside when I can, of course, following all the social distancing rules. When the state parks were open, my family and I went there every single day. We, we, we were able to go and hike and walk around and really enjoy nature. Uh, now that they are closed, we are finding different ways at home. <laughs> Today, my brother came up to me and asked if we can make a slip and slide. Oh my gosh. So we made a homemade slip and slide today. Um, that was really enjoyable to watch my brother. Also, it wasn't 50 degrees. I think it was like 45 degrees today. So oh my, my brother gosh. was in a full wetsuit and just going back and forth all over with this oh brand my new. Gosh. <laughs> You're, I wish I was making this up. Your brother is so creative. I think all the time. What are you guys yes. doing over at the Freund house? You must be doing some really creative stuff because over here, yes. I I love my mom. And if she's listening, I need her to know <laughs> I love her. But she has this house on lockdown with a capital L. It is It is quite a lot of fun over here. And she's taking <laughs> some serious precautions. Which I totally That's understand. Good. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, my mom safety. has. Yes, absolutely. Safety first. My, my mom has a health condition. Um, and so she takes it very seriously, of course. And so we're doing everything that she needs us to do to make sure that she's safe and that she's healthy. Um, but we haven't been doing takeout or any of that. So that's been hard. Um, I know my mom says every day. Um, I can't wait until we're out of here. We are never cooking again. We're just going to eat out <laughs> all the time. And um, oh we, we, we've we grown a little bit tired of, of my dad's cooking. Again, dad, I love you if you're listening, but <laughs> you're not a great cook. I'm, I'm sorry. 
Um, that has come to light during the quarantine. We're getting through it. We're pushing through. Um, yeah. Like you said, I've and been I know doing... you are a senior, so um, yeah, your graduation. Yeah, so, they. Right. Yeah, that's been hard. Yeah, that's been hard. I've been I've been doing online classes too, just like you, and um, it's been interesting getting used to all of that. But yeah, my graduation was postponed canceled for May. We're going to do a virtual ceremony. I mean, who could have, who could have ever expected that this was going to happen though? I mean, it's great. Rowan's really doing a great job making sure that we're still going to get that experience. They're going to try to have it later in the summer, but I think that it's all for a reason. Yeah, it's good. It's good that we're taking the proper precautions and, um, graduation will will happen when it happens. Uh But, you know, my, my brother's a senior in high school, so um, that's been hard for him too, and I can only imagine if mm. if I didn't get to have my high school graduation. Let's hope we're let's hope we're getting near the end of all this. Our, I agree, Isabella. If you want to tell them a little bit about our about our first guest today, they might be able yeah. to help them out with some info about what's going on. Absolutely. So our first guest today is Marla Abramson. She's a doctor of internal medicine. She went to George Washington University School of Medicine. Um, she was also a cardiovascular research scientist for SIBA Pharmaceuticals in Summit. She's also taught uh, physiology at Hanneman University and Lafayette College. So she knows what she's talking about. Um, yes. so I'm really excited to, you know, talk with her and see her take on everything that's going on. Me too. I'm excited to hear from her because I think that scrolling through social media, you see so many people generating opinions and claims and how they feel or what they think the right thing to do is use the plastic silverware don't Mm -hmm. use it wear the mask don't wear the mask um so I think she's going to bring us a different perspective on this and and hopefully give you guys who are listening at home some advice about what you can do how to protect yourself and even touch a little bit on what our what our new normal might be now we're here with Marla Abramson thank you for being here for having me here. The first thing I wanted to ask is if you could talk about one myth or one mistake that people are making when they are talking about the coronavirus as a doctor, what would you say that is? I know everyone wants testing, but people have to understand at this point, you know, the testing that we have right now is very limited. Um, We are trying to save it for the sickest people and that are really in need and of the highest priority so as much as we want everyone to be tested it's really not a reality at this time and we also want people to stay home and if they think they have it don't come out Um, if you are very sick though we're encouraging people please come out please get tested we're here to help you we want you to understand why we have to limit testing but we're also there to help and answer questions also people have been asking about hydrochloroquine and and zithromax um, you know, again, you have to be reasonable about things and save them for those people that really need things. You know, resources are limited, and um, we're trying to really the sickest people. So I know President Trump has been talking a lot recently, especially today, about a return to normalcy and the new normal. So as what do you think that that looks like from a medical standpoint, that new normal? Well, I, I seem to not... I, to listen to the doctors. Dr. Fauci, he's the person you want to listen to. You know, he's in charge. They put him in charge for a good reason. He's supposed to be, you know, knowledgeable and and help the, um, you know, the people that are out there that have questions. And hopefully I've been seeing him nightly, and I think he has some good advice. I think he's a good source of information. You know, the CDC website is also a good source of information. So you just have to really use your source properly and really have to go to the proper sources. So with all this talk about like going back to normal with all this normalcy, like do you think that will happen relatively soon or what what is your perspective on that? That's hard to predict and I think but the problem is not the whole country to go to normalcy. It's gonna have to be one state at a time because lots of other states are behind. New York and New Jersey and San Francisco seem to have these large caves. My parents are in Florida. I warned them three, four weeks ago, and they were going about their business normally, and they didn't heed our advice that it was going on up here, and now they're all panicked down there. Well, we said, what to expect. Prepare yourself and stay in your shopping safely, and, you know, everyone wash their hands and, and limit your contact and exposure because 
can't just do every, you know, each state is, has to be individualized. <laughs> you know, we can't, you know, people can't say all at once everything's going to go back to normal. It's going to be a slow process over the next month to six weeks. So correct me if I'm wrong. So I know you're living in New York and you work in New Jersey. So obviously those are two of the biggest hot spots, the epicenter for the virus. So what has that been like? What has your day-to-day changed into now that this has happened? Well, everything just changed two and a half weeks ago. Uh, I never thought I'd be doing telemedicine. I don't love it, but it's, an, it's what we have to do to adapt to what's going on. So I find it's been helpful to my patients just to know that we're out there for them. Uh, so again, up to two and a half weeks, I was in the office every day. Uh, when I mostly do work from home, I start my morning at 7.45. I do a lot of tele, televisits, televideo visits. My older patients, if they don't have video access, then we do it on the phone the best we can. You know, I do really feel that you miss a lot not seeing your patient in person. I do go to the office. We all take turns once a, a week. Uh, I only see one or two patients that really have to come in. The whole staff, you know, now we're all with gloves and masks when we're in close proximity to each other, whereas a few weeks ago we weren't, but now we are. Um, we've also adapted by taking people's temperatures and everyone gets screened who is coming into the office. But like I said, it's only one or two visits. Other than that, it's we're all pretty much on the phone every day. It's very tedious. And again, we're trying to help people engage them in the right directions and the right instructions and to let them know that we're, you know, your doctor is still out there. Yeah. Uh, they're here to help you. They're here to answer questions the best we can and try to deter, you know, anything, you know, misinterpretations that are out there. Probably one of the biggest questions that I think New Jerseyans are asking is that they keep yeah. saying that the curve is being flattened, yet we keep seeing the rise in cases and people are saying, you know, if people are staying in their homes, why do the deaths and the cases continue to go up? And I saw a few interesting articles, but I wondered your take on that. Well, as far as cases, I mean, I've actually seen a lot of people whose symptoms have lasted about four weeks. And even though they weren't that sick in the beginning, now three, four weeks out, they're getting even sicker. So I think that's why we're seeing these sicker cases now. More people are coming out, getting sicker, and then being tested. Also, there's more testing centers and more testing availability. So I think that's why we're detecting more cases. As far as the death toll, that I can't answer. I do think that, you know, a couple weeks ago, people weren't really taking this seriously. I mean, I know a month ago, I was at a bat mitzvah. <laughs> and so all those people now, two, three weeks later, fortunately, no one was exposed, but it's now two, three, four weeks later, which is now this time that people finally were listening and we're seeing the sick people now, the three, four week later time lag that was there. People were exposed, but we didn't see the sickness a week after exposure or two weeks. We're actually seeing it three or four weeks later. Wow. Yeah, I've had people that you know, they were okay in the beginning, they got a little bit better, and then three, four weeks later, they were got sick, um, you know, and then also family members exposing themselves, people are still going to their jobs and work, right, right? people are still on the subways, they have to get to their jobs, healthcare work, people that take care of the elderly, it's, it's hard, and then the nursing homes, I'm sure it's being, you know, these people are coming in, and then the healthcare workers have to be there, they're probably negative or asymptomatic, or maybe family members may have been there recently as much as three, four weeks ago and exposing their family members. And then it just takes one person and then the rest of the staff or the, or the patients get sick or the residents. Yeah. So right. it's just well, like, that's why I don't think it's going to be better right away. It's going to be this three, four week, six week lag behind till we start seeing a better improvement. Right. There's been a lot of talk about how we might ease out of it kind of the way we eased into it with the restrictions thing by thing with we have the masks on then we take them off and I know even Governor Murphy's been throwing around a lot that he personally feels like the warm weather has something to do with it but I know there's a lot of conflicting views on that so what what's your take on that if that stops well, it? Well I tell people you need to get outside first the UV light should be killing everything the sun and UV light kills germs um you know, getting fresh air, but, you know, keeping your distance is also important, and exercising, you know, you want to move your lymphatic system by exercising and walking, because our lymphatic system helps fight off infections, so getting inside, even doing inside exercises, you want to have some normalcy as far as being outside and exercising are always important, but again, the whole 
no restriction at all or just suddenly going from all or nothing is, is really just not the right answer. It, it isn't because we do see these lag times of exposure. Um, people are definitely keeping their distances. Stores and restaurants are closed. Uh, it takes me no time to get home from work. <laughs> wow. It's, it's, it's scary because I was actually interning at Fox News in New York City at Fox and Friends, and wow. I was working there when the whole outbreak started, and wow. we were just seeing it happening in other countries, and it was being covered all the time. Everybody was almost sick about talking about it, and then all of a sudden it was in the United States from the cruise ship, and it was just so crazy how quick it got here and how no one was taking it seriously. I mean, Dr. Drew was even on Fox and Friends at one point, and he was steadfast in saying that he did not think it was real, he thought it was a hoax, and now he's even issued an apology for saying that he was just so wrong about it. It's just crazy just how it's taken a toll on people. Mm -hmm. The problem is we've never seen this disease before, and I've never seen, I mean, I worked in very sick hospitals with HIV, and I've never seen an infection present with so many different symptoms in every patient I've interviewed. And now, because I've interviewed so many patients, I kind of know what to tell them and to look for to what I've seen a month to five weeks of symptoms now, um, such dramatic symptoms from very mild to even now diarrhea and vomiting and nausea and headaches very different than other people with a cough and fatigue so the the symptoms are vary so much in everyone I've talked to as well as the time frame um, I actually had one family every family member was hospitalized um, they all oh presented in very different ways yeah they all present in very different ways and they've actually gone back two three times they've tested negative and then they tested positive after three four times so again that was just one family's case and that was just they all had such extreme symptoms that they were each hospitalized. Some tests were positive, some tests came back positive, negative. So again, it's just really not predictable in anyone. It's such dramatic, vast symptoms and it's such a different timeline and time frame for each individual. The father who has many medical problems and the, and the oldest out of the whole family, he actually was the least sick out of any, out three of the family members versus the younger son wow. who would have had not such severe symptoms and recover easily, he did not do that. So it's just very unpredictable. Uncertainty of it all is really what's really getting everyone. It is. It's, it's definitely hard emotionally. I think people forget not just the physical toll that it takes, but emotionally. And I know like Isabella and I have seen so many people, ourselves included, who have had to handle the canceled events and the postponed graduations, yeah. which seems like nothing to people who have lost their family members mm -hmm. and their loved ones. And it's just been such a change. And I watched the press conference earlier and now it seems like you're kind of on the way out. But I mean, who would have thought in um, little old New Jersey that we would have ended up being the hot spot and be in such a terrible spot. It just kind of hit us like a mm -hmm. ton of bricks. This was fun. This was fun. Thank you for doing this. She was I love great. that so much. My heart goes after her. Like she said, she's um, living in New York, right? Yes. Working in New Jersey. So mm -hmm. my heart goes out to her for how she's getting through all of this and staying safe. And I can't even, I can't even imagine going from being a doctor every single day to then doing telehealth every single day. Um, yeah, it's totally it's a big difference. I know. From talking face-to-face in-person interactions um, as a doctor to go on to online kind of like everything right now. Absolutely. And, you know, that kind of brings me to discussing a little bit about why we named our podcast, the Closer Apart Podcast, yes. because I don't think we quite touched on that yet. But when we no. were thinking about what we wanted to call this, we wanted to call it the Closer Apart Podcast because one of the main reasons for myself personally that I was so drawn to want to start this podcast is to just talk about the facts, what's really happening, and try to help people. There's been so much hesitation towards the idea of social distancing going on and too many people just living their lives as normal, living it as usual. Mm -hmm. And I think even a lot of people in our generation and the younger generation who thought that they were kind of invincible, untouchable, and that nothing could happen to them and 
gosh, I've just seen so many posts and stories and videos of people who are just still continuing to gather. And it's just really hard to see. So it is really we, hard to see that. When we decided that we were going to name this the Closer Apart podcast, in all this time, all this time that we've been sitting home and with our families and having all this extra time on our hands, I think I think that it really has brought us closer in a sense, even though we are farther apart. Um, because like I said to Isabella before, I don't know when in any other time in my life that we've ever just had this time to sit with our family and not have to leave or go anywhere or have any obligations. I mean, of course, now at this point, we, we wish more than anything we could have those obligations, but it's brought us closer. And I just feel like even though there's always going to be negatives in this situation, if we look at the positive, it's, it's that we've been able to come together. And that makes me happy. And, and I hope that as we get going here with this podcast, that it helps someone to, to know that they're not alone and, and that we're here for them. So that's just what we're trying to do here. Even though all these rules are in place for us to stay away from each other, this also gives, a, gives us an opportunity to bond with especially our family, those who I'm quarantined with. Um, yeah. just, I, I've really, I've enjoyed that aspect of it, of being with my family and bonding. Yeah. I think it's just so important. It's something that I kind of have forgotten about. Um, so yeah. you, you would think that being at home, you would have easier access to uh, technology and social media that people say, like, bring us apart and we lose that kind of personable aspect of it. But I've found that I've been just having more conversations with um, my family and yeah. talking with my friends, even online, still face-to-face on FaceTime. Um, I think it, it's really allowed us to become closer. I know we talked a little bit about it with Marla, but I know that President Trump rolled out some guidelines yesterday about some of the states who might begin to get out of the quarantine mm-hmm. and some of the phases that they'll go through. Um, and I know he talked about how New York and New Jersey are such hot spots, how hard we've been hit. I know it's hard because we as New Jerseyans don't really know when we'll get out. I mean, it's it's very true. We've been hit very hard, I think harder than any of us expected. And we're really just kind of waiting it out and, and seeing what the governor tells us to do and the president. So I think there's there's definitely some uncertainty there and what will our new normal be? And I think too, it, there's a lot of conflicting information for people who are listening and who are watching the news. No one knows quite where to go, who should they listen to? And I think everybody's just really scared. And that's why we really kind of wanted yeah. our first podcast to be with medical professionals because we wanted to give you the most accurate and intelligent information as possible because we are yeah. certainly not doctors. <laughs> we want you to know no. that. We do not We do not think that we are, but we're really grateful that we were able to bring a few medical professionals on the show today to be able to talk to you about that and give you some insight. And our next guest that we have for you today is Amy Berhana, and Amy grew up in Drexel Hill, PA. She went to Upper Darby High School and got her bachelor's in biology from St. Joe's University. My brother's going there. Um, After a year of research, she attended Hanneman University Medical School, which is also where Marla went. Yeah. Right? That's funny. Or she, she taught there. Right. So she received her medical degree in 93. And in 96, Dr. Bahana completed her internship and residency at University Hospitals of Cleveland. And now she has opened Coastal Cardiology. She currently serves as chairman of the Critical Care Committee at Cape Regional Medical Center and is board certified in cardiology. So we're excited to have Amy here today. Hopefully she can give you Another perspective, in addition to the one that Dr. Abramson gave today, I know Amy stays very informed on what's going on, follows the news quite frequently. So we're going to bring her in and and give you her perspective on how you can stay safe during this pandemic and the information that you should know. Hi, how are you doing? Hi. Hi, Amy. Thanks for doing this. The first thing I wanted to ask you was, what is the biggest thing that you wish that people knew about this pandemic as a doctor? Are there myths or mistakes that people are making when they're talking about the coronavirus? There's a lot of science behind it, but because it's new and there's a lot of people talking about it, but they really should listen to the experts and not get 
world up in all the politics. There hasn't been that much politics, I, I will say, in the little bit that I've watched. But basically, um, you have to trust the government, which I know is a tough thing to do because we're all very independent as Americans. But scientists are truly non-political, um, physicians, um, researchers, epidemiologists, and they're not thinking that way at all. I, I really hope that people see that. Right. But because our country has been so divided politically, I just really wish people would just let that go. And and I believe that people are in general, people are pulling together and looking at providers and first responders in a way they never did, which is wonderful. Um, but I, I think the main thing I'd recommend is patience, right? right. Uh, patience and hope, patience with uh, science and hope for the whole country. Americans are so independent that they always so, so self-reliant. And there is the internet, which is a wonderful way for even scientists to speak with one another from um, Europe to uh, the United States. And um, it just doesn't, the answers just don't come that quickly. You can look something up so easily on the internet and then get your answer and figure it out for yourself. And that's a part, part of being independent. But in this right. pandemic situation, which seems to only happen every hundred years, it's, it's a matter of patience, but keeping the hope there. What are the best um, ways that people can take care of themselves right now? First and foremost, don't just be at home and think that it's just time off. It is a springboard to become a better person, a better citizen. And first and foremost, learning and teaching yourself the habit of washing your hands and not touching your face. Those are huge um, factors in getting us back to some normalcy in our society. Um, and and definitely making the most of your time at home, which you didn't have before. And if you find yourself bored, then find ways to um, entertain yourself that you didn't ever thought of before or didn't have time to do that. Spending more time outside is is big for everyone. And as a cardiologist, of course, everyone should walk for 15 minutes a day, every single day. And if it's ugly weather outside, just look at the British. It rains there 80% of the time and they still go out in the rain. You can go out in the rain. But if you can't and you don't want to, because it's potentially risky for you to be out there in some way, there's a lot of places down right. in Cape May that are so windy, I wouldn't advise people go out. But you can march in place. But if you find a way to just exercise your body and your mind every single day, you'll find something new about yourself that you didn't know about before. And you'll come out of this better off and even more independent than you thought you could be. That's, that's my biggest advice in terms of for everyone from the older person right. who's alone to the younger person who's bored. So I know with the press conferences we've seen in the last couple of days, it sounds like we may be getting out of the woods soon or certain states. So as a doctor, what is your opinion? Are we close to being out of the woods? Every state is different. Every state has one, either one pocket or tiny little pockets. I mean, there's states that could start the first phase right. of recovery Friday, yesterday. But I'm very hopeful. I've been trying to watch the task force talk every day, but that's a little difficult because it goes on for a long time. But if you tape it, you can just listen to the scientists. You can just listen to the part of it that you want to listen to. Now, Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci are a wealth right. of information, but they're one pocket. I do understand that mm -hmm. a, a little bit better, I think, having been a scientist myself. But the way they present it, I think everybody gets something out of it. The questions that the reporters are asking, 80% of them are are really very good questions. It's what I think everybody's asking in the U.S., but getting back to the fact that I've seen probably 50 to 70% of them, but most importantly on Thursday night, Dr. Right. Brooks talked about the return to, well, it's the coming back of America. I'm not sure what the term uh, they gave it in the White House, but I, I'm very positive about this, and I'm really happy because of the way our country is structured that they're letting the governors make the decisions because moving <laughs> forward, this isn't going to be a federally uh, run or necessarily funded thing. It'll be back that way. But the original reason for the stay at home order was so that our hospitals were not overwhelmed. 
Right. So the physicians literally were not deciding who gets a ventilator and who doesn't. That's a very, very nerve wracking idea or thought. Being a critical care physician, I never thought I'd ever have to make that decision, especially living in the United States. But when you saw it happening in Italy, um, which is a mm-hmm. um, an excellent medical society, there's a lot of literature that comes out of Italy and, and has, and then Germany and the way they handled it. But we did that. We did what they call the mitigation to prevent that from happening. And we're going to the next phase. Before we even hit May 1st, there's already people that are towns and counties. I have yet to understand whether or not it's going to be a state thing or a county thing uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of recovery. And all that kind of needs to be worked out. But what a lot of people are afraid of is they're afraid to move out of the mitigation phase and the stay-at-home order, understandably, because they don't understand that if their governor is allowing for 10 people to get together as opposed to no people to congregate, then it means that it's safer to do that. But we all should have learned not to touch our faces without washing our hands first. And so Mm -hmm. it also is huge from a medical standpoint. And I don't believe they're talking about this enough. And that is that we have so much ingenuity in this country and they've been working so hard on treatment. So treatment yeah. that is be given, going to be given prophylactically to not just sick patients, but to people who are at greater risk or if little pockets of infections break out, say in one town in a specific county, those people can be treated without saying, okay, the whole country needs to just shut down again. That just can happen and it won't happen. So if you actually discover a medicine that works to prevent someone from actually dying when they're on the ventilator, that's awesome. But there's scientists studying things that will prevent you from getting it if you're exposed to that person in the past 14 days. Or if you start to have the symptoms, we know that within five days, if you start this medication, you're never going to get to the point of being sick enough to go in the hospital, let alone in the intensive care unit and go on the ventilator. They haven't been explaining that, that we won the battle of mitigation and preventing us from overwhelming all the hospitals. And they do mention that, that that's why we're opening things up a little bit. But I I think they don't want people to jump right back into having life as it was before. And it's not sad. It'll never be the same. It's just, let's be smart about this. Let's be on our toes and, and ready for whatever next little fight it is that we have to do. So they're not talking enough about how science is really coming up with ways to get us through the next time period until that vaccine is available. That, that is actually something I really thought I'd say first today is that we're not, we don't have to be hermits until the vaccine's available. There's a whole process between now and then. And there is an antibody that is directed. It's, it's a man-made antibody towards the little, I call it a flag. It's actually a receptor on the surface of the virus that says, hey, this is me. This makes me COVID-19. Well, there are scientists who did this for Ebola, but they direct man-made antibodies at, it recognizes that little flag. And then that will be able to be given to people. And it's not a vaccine, but it will prevent disease. And that's not going to be available from what I understand until at least August, but August isn't that far away. And that's well before a vaccine would be available. So there's a lot more hope scientifically out there than I think the internet can explain to people. And that's because, you know, these people sit in labs all day long. They're very intelligent. They are very thoughtful in their own lives, but they're not people who are typically on the front lines telling people how things are. They're not involved in politics. They, in, in terms of their work, they might be on their own personal level, but there's a lot of work going on out there. There's a lot of hope, especially in our country. I know of over 25 studies that are going on with medications and from all different companies. It's not just say Abbott and Amgen, great companies um, for decades. It's many different companies, which means the ingenuity is there. There's people out there that are thinking of things that no other company is. So I'm very hopeful for that reason. So I just wanted to mention something else since you sort of touched on it. There's been a lot of talk about different medications that have come about, like the hydrochloroquine, the malaria drug. What success are you seeing with specific medications? I do try to listen to physicians that are um, talking online. I know I can speak for Fox News has one longstanding physician who I really like a lot. He's a New York physician not you know physicians in general are non-biased but in this day and age um there's 
there's many physicians who are talking. Um, physicians who are involved in research mm -hmm. and clinical practice where they take care of patients, but they also do research are probably the best people or best physicians to listen to. I know that Fox News has a lot of times where physicians will answer people's questions. Just everyday people can call up and ask questions. And, and, and the internet in that regard is a great venue. But I would recommend that you listen to a physician who, like I said, is at a university hospital yeah. where there's research going on and they're doing clinical practice. I have 21 years of clinical practice, but in a community hospital. So I as well rely on my colleagues who are in university settings, research that comes out Johns Hopkins. And so listening to physicians in that respect is, is very good. But I also know a lot because I was a scientist myself at one point. So in terms of like when they say there's promise, it means it looks like it's going to be protective. And that's hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir. I think I'm saying it right correctly. It's an antiviral. So and there's probably three others, at least that are in the clinical trials. See, the reason why mm -hmm. we are not willing to say that this is, you know, the magic bullet is because you have to prove because it can look like it's it would be the miracle drug. But unless you trial it against not using it, you just might it might just look that way. You have to prove scientifically that it's better. So those right. are underway at the University of Pennsylvania, Presbyterian. They're underway in, in multiple hospitals in New York. I believe there's 21 trials ongoing. And it's not going to be that much longer before we have some more answers. I have not heard of any one particular drug completely dropping mm -hmm. out. And I know there's little things popping up on the internet. Oh, this is bad. Or remdesivir caused liver enzyme elevation. We use medications all the time that can cause liver enzyme elevation. Obesity causes liver enzyme elevation. But you follow it and you see the liver is a very powerful organ and it's responsible for, for metabolizing many of the medications that people put in their system for chronic illnesses. So they have to test to see, is it really best served in people who aren't on drug A, B, or C? And- if that's the case, you can take those people off those drugs, replace it with something that's equivalent that doesn't have the interaction with the, the medicine. So there's, there's mm -hmm. a, a real myriad of thought that goes into what's best for the patient and you balance what's the risk, what's the benefit. And they're working on that all the time. So when someone has a relative, like just say, I'm not putting down reporters, but just say a reporter has a relative who died of COVID, but they, what they heard the doctor saying on the phone, because you're not allowed to visit, was that his liver was really bad. To them, it is, oh my gosh, it was the drug they tried to use to save his life that caused a liver enzyme elevation, because I heard mm -hmm. that it can cause liver enzyme elevation. Well, that's right. not the case. What happens in terms of there's so many aspects to how you get to that point, um, which a physician knows because you went through four years of medical school, and I went through six years of training after medical school. So 10 years after college, I was allowed to start making decisions for myself and order medicines for patients. I did a year of research after medical school. So I was 33 by the time I was allowed to literally make a decision for a patient myself and take care of a patient without anybody looking over my shoulder. So what happens with COVID and with a lot of infections, I'm sure you've heard of sepsis. There was a, a real right. push for sepsis care in the seven to 10 years before COVID-19 came about. What happens is the infection invades your yeah. body or the virus invades your body, and then your body tries to overwhelm it and kill it. When it does that, it calls in a lot of what we call inflammatory factors. And if those inflammatory factors end, start, end up starting turning on yourself, or they kind of go past the, the border and they're going beyond what you needed, they're actually causing harm. And when they do that, it sets up a maelstrom in your body where your blood pressure drops. When your blood pressure drops, you can't live unless we keep it up with medicines. And that's why you need intensive care units to watch the, the blood pressure literally every minute of all day long and adjust the medicines to help until your body is no longer overwhelmed by this inflammatory reaction. That is your immune response to kill the virus or kill the bacteria. So when your blood pressure drops, blood flow to organs, especially the liver, yeah. is, is turned off almost for a little bit of time and it takes a yeah. hit or what we call an infarction or parts of it die. And that raises the liver enzymes. So we call it shock or infarction. So the liver enzymes are elevated because the blood pressure went so low before we could get it back up. Now you're alive, but your liver has to recover from its own insult. And it wasn't the drug that we used to try and save your life. It was 
the initial overreaction of your body's immune system. So a lot of what's going on with COVID and these ventilators, and there's this talk out there about the ventilators are really not the best thing for you because they're kind of blowing up the little little uh, air cells in your lung, and that's not the right way to do it. Everybody's learning, and no one's getting up in the morning with the intent to go to the ICU and take care of COVID patients with intent to harm them in any way. The second that the medical society feels that that is the wrong thing to do, we'll stop doing it. But we don't have proof of that at all. And in science, you need proof or you'll just keep running down different alleys thinking you're doing the right thing and you're not really helping anyone. So I know a lot has obviously changed in the last month or so. So what specifically, like being a medical professional has changed for you? There's a lot of things that have changed. Mm -hmm. On one end, there's a tremendous amount of anxiety. And it's not just in the patients. My patients are chronically ill with chronic heart disease for the most part. Mm -hmm. There's the anxiety of people who don't know because they don't know. They're either not being told or it's just, it's overwhelming. They can't know enough about it to feel comfortable that I'm going to be okay. And then that's even worse for people who are anxious to begin with. So my patient population is under duress. They can't come in and see me. But we do televisits now, which is much better. But a patient the other day who's still in Florida from her Florida winter time, and the, the, it was very pixely, and it was very hard because the delay was so bad that we couldn't really have a conversation. Oh. So I ended up calling her up, but that ties into the fact that you don't have people coming in, you don't have people getting elective surgeries and I don't, I can't do a stress test. So every time I'm taking care of a patient, say they come in the hospital, they don't have COVID. They have no symptoms of COVID. They've not been exposed to anybody with COVID. They just have chest pain and we're worried that they're threatening a heart attack. We get them in the hospital. Thank goodness they came and didn't avoid it and have something bad happen at home. They don't have Mm -hmm. a heart attack, but it was definitely a threatening one. So we kind of give them some medications to settle, settle it down so that we can wait either to send them to the cath lab or have them do an outpatient stress test. But then you have so many hospitals because they're literally losing millions of dollars a week with not having the income of all this testing of the relatively healthy but chronically ill patients. They've laid off and furloughed so many people that normally assist you that you don't have these people to assist you. So the only people that are being taken care of now, appropriately so, are those who are either urgent or um, emergent or semi-urgent, such as say a patient who's just diagnosed with a, a tumor, obviously they need the care. Um, there's certain procedures I do that are what they're called, they result in aerosolization of their, their saliva, or it's, um, it's going to expose everybody in the room, the anesthesiologist, the nurse anesthetist, myself, the echo technician, the um, same-day surgery nurse, so that patient needs to be tested for COVID. And because we're in a rural area, it, and it took up until very recently, five to seven days to get the results back. So you couldn't even do the test to assess their heart um, for something very important. With the test we do on a regular basis before COVID without even thinking twice about it. Right. Um, so there's a lot of delay in there in care. And there is definitive lack of people coming to the emergency room. We knew this was going to happen because people are afraid to come. And it's fine Mm -hmm. if you really kind of just get through it at home, whatever it was that maybe you didn't even really need to come. But what we've found is that there there are quite a few number of people who were having heart attacks and our numbers are down. They're not coming to the emergency room. So we're very concerned that people are staying home with symptoms that really should bring you to the emergency Mm -hmm. room or the urgent care at least. And that that's a big concern. And it's we thought it was maybe just right. n- the numbers were down overall like a few weeks ago, right. but it's definitely a real concern. And that means that people are having heart attacks at home. And if they're not passing away from those heart attacks, they're going to end up with a much weaker heart and much more problems long-term and maybe not live as long as they would otherwise. So COVID has had ramifications beyond what was expected by anyone. Wow. So my life is very different on many levels. Well, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was I know that President Trump rolled out his coronavirus reopening council. And I think a few people were surprised to see that it was filled with so many big business owners uh, and leaders. And I know, for instance, Mark Cuban is on there from the the Dallas Mavericks owner. So as a doctor, 
do you think that the business leaders are the best choices to be on the task force? I think big business owners, anybody who owns their own business is just has a completely different perspective. I actually owned my own cardiology business before I joined uh, Kate Regional Physician Associates. So um, it just gives you a different perspective on life in, in general, not just making money, but hiring people or hiring the right people, supporting people. You're really, there are so many people relying on you to give them a paycheck every week and to pay for their, their health insurance. And that, that gives you a certain responsibility that you understand that a decision you're making, even as with other people, is going to affect so many aspects of society and then different levels of people in terms of their economic uh, abilities. So I appreciate people that are running big businesses because they have to think on so many different levels and not just from um, their own perspective, but how they got there. I, I'm partial to the group being a myriad of people. I actually don't know. I know about Mark Cuban. I've heard him talk and I like the way he right. thinks. I think it's funny too, because many people have mentioned he was not a fan of President Trump. And it's funny because he said he didn't even know he was on the council until the day that it was announced. But I mean, whether you're Democrat or Republican, I, I think it's really right. good to see, like you said, that they're right. coming very together. I, I think there's probably no one better than a great businessman himself, like President Trump was before he became president, to help economic recovery. Is he the best? I mean, time will tell that. But still, I, in the same way that I felt that it was in my opinion, wrong that President Obama did not have some of what I think are the greatest um, physicians, leaders, scientists to help him decide what was the best way to get health care for all or the Obamacare program. It was just it was too much about them and them helping other people, which is is very um, good hearted of them. But I don't think it was smart to do it that way because there weren't enough people from different factions of right. Medicare, Medicaid, healthcare, to help him decide what was the best way to do this. And it may just be it's, you know, lawyers are extremely well read, but I think it's more a myriad. I think President Trump having the task force with two well-known, well-respected physicians on it um, and scientists. So I would, I would appreciate it if right. they not only had like PhD, but he had someone who's been in clinical practice yeah. at a university for a long period of time. I mean, no one, I think no one more so than physicians right. can be non-biased in terms of how to save lives. You don't care when you're a doctor. You don't, you don't even know what insurance they have. You just, right. you just do what you're supposed to do. You do what you're taught to do and their life and saving it and or prolonging it or improving their quality is your goal every time you walk into a, a patient's room. So I heard President Trump did, he was, he wanted to get rid of all vaping altogether. Do you, do you recall this when um, he wanted to just mm -hmm. ban it? ban it because and I think yeah he I just was that. so worried about so many young kids getting really bad lung disease or dying that right. it scared him to the point he's like I'm banning it and then there was silence for a little while and then somehow I heard this like hour-long closed yeah. door thing but I guess he brought some media in he got together what's the number one vape company he got number one and number two um Jewel he got the head of Jewel he got mm -hmm. the people that were second to them in terms of monetary vaping materials. He got together people who are in charge of, you know, children and um, a pediatrician was on there and he got them all in this room. It was a pretty small group. And he wanted to hear from them what, how they thought that we could make rules about vaping for the companies that make this stuff for um, uh, an age that would be appropriate to limited, such as 21 for drinking, right? That type of thing. And one of the first questions asked of him was, well, we thought you wanted to ban this. What? And he said, listen, if I banned it, it would just be like a black market for it after that. And how would that be good? Jewel wouldn't be able to make money, wouldn't have this good business anymore. And we would lose control over who could do it and who not. So let's just all sit here and talk and figure out what's the best way 
to keep the companies from folding because of this, to keep kids from dying, to keep people from landing in the hospital. And he just sat there and listened to everybody talk about how this all came about because it was out for years and years and years, or I should say years before this happened and had something to do with when they started putting additives to it. And being a physician, oh my goodness, I recognized right away how many of my, my patients quit smoking because of vaping. And And I didn't feel that vaping at that time, there weren't people getting this bad lung disease. So there was some truth to that, but that was the most non-medical group talking that was academic that I felt was on the level of scientists who aren't biased to their company or to one group of people that they want to benefit from this, maybe not even monetarily, such as my patients who were quitting smoking, major medical benefit that way. So if he put that group together, I felt confident that he could put a task force together that would help with reopening the economy. But hands down, when I saw Dr. Burks present the plan to reopen the economy and the steps that we take, what a great amalgam of what scientists yeah. want and what the economists need. My thought lately yeah. is that, and this is probably, this is not even medical, but my thought lately is that we do need, everybody says this, we need better infrastructure in our, family, we, in our country. We need to redo that. And what better way to get so many millions of people employed in the very short future than to have them start redoing our bridges and, and our, our roads and, and right. making buildings safe. Right. And it's outside yeah. because the people who work outside, Creating it's jobs. easy to be six feet apart, right? And still be social because humans are social animals. And so I'm very hopeful that he's right. working on that. He's spoken of it a couple of times, but if, if you're asking me like what my advice would be for anybody in his position, it's just don't involve just these really great people that are successful and built up businesses on their own and wasn't handed to them or handed down to them. They really understand the, the worker um, right. like he himself understands workers if you go, if you own a business and you're actually on the job site and you've actually done the, the hard work that got that person, they helps them bring home their check every week and you worked your way up in the, in the business itself. For instance, there was a CEO when I was at Case Western um, in my medical residency, from what I understand, she was a respiratory therapist. So kind of makes a pretty good CEO of a hospital when they were you know, pretty low on the ranks themselves to start. So it gives that person yeah. different perspectives. So back to his task force, I apologize, don't know who's on that reopening task force, but I think there need to be business owners on that because they have a better big picture look at how we realistically can reopen the economy, right? And and you understand medically, there's a real yeah, serious absolutely, problem right now with people being depressed that they're out of work because they really get their self-worth for me at work or maybe they don't they just go to work because they like yeah they get their check and it helps support their family they don't particularly love the job but they love the people at their job um i had a, one of my friends at our hospital she was furloughed right. it was understandable she had to be but she was crying and i i couldn't even hug her that was a horrible wow. feeling and i didn't I just thought it was all going to be about death, but there's so much horrible feeling out there. Um, I must say, since I'm on the radio, if you want to call her on the internet, I have been absolutely felt absolutely like loved and appreciated. And with all these people that make posters and put these things on zoom or Mm -hmm. different, different parts of the internet where you can see that people are appreciative and they're, doing the best they can and they're making posters for their grandmom who they can't touch or anything, but they put their hand to the window. There's just a lot of hope out there. And, right. and a lot of the providers feel the appreciation uh, probably more than they ever did. I do have one last question for you. This has been amazing. So the curve is supposedly flattening, but the number of cases and deaths are still going up. Why do you think that this is happening? Well, you have to have the number of cases declining before the number of deaths decline because the person the people that were sick two weeks ago, um, say 20% of them aren't going to live. That's a pretty high number, but just say 20% of them aren't going to live. Of that 20%, 15% are going to be on the ventilator for two weeks before they actually, we realize we've done everything we can and it's still not working. 
Do you see what I mean? So the, the number of people showing up sick has to decline before right. you, and then there's a time lapse before you have the outcome of the ones who came in the two weeks before sick. So we flattening the curve was also about, it was first about preventing the curve from being so steep that our hospitals were overwhelmed. One that, right? Second is flattening the curve so that we have control over knowing, are we headed in the right direction? And when can we predict how things are going to go? But remember that because of because we're not testing yet as many people as we would have liked to even a month ago, we don't really know the true numbers, right? Now, we, don't, we know the bad numbers, so that's good. But we may find that right. we did so well in mitigating. We did so well in scientifically in figuring out how to keep these people alive, prone them, meaning put them on their stomach, intubate them or put them on sooner. What I understand now is happening is we found ways to not put them on the ventilator, give them high flow oxygen without putting our providers at significant risk for contacting it. Okay. So if that's the case, that means that our number is going to look even better two to four weeks from now than we had imagined or predicted. Uh, and then that will make everyone feel better about, okay, we're right. not going to be going backwards from here at all, but how can we make it even better? Oh, we have treatments now for the providers who are the most exposed to the sickest patients because you're still going to have people going on the ventilators. It's just not going to be a lot. Okay. And they're, Will they be forgotten about? No, the doctors are still going to take care of them. One thing I'd like to say for sure is that there hasn't been any major setbacks that have made me concerned as a physician that, oh my gosh, we did something wrong. I don't like hearing about people say, well, you know, we have less than 60,000 that are going to be dead from this. We have more than that in one given winter season that die from the flu. Well, that number, that number is what it is because we have I know mm-hmm. that number would be huge. It would be three, four, five times higher. I'm not an epidemiologist, but it would be so much higher right. if we didn't have the vaccine for the flu. And so some people, just like some people say, well, listen, I got the flu, even though I right. got the shot. Well, the, the flu vaccine is designed every year. Try and pick the, I don't know the number, Ugh. say it's 17 most virulent out of the 17,000 viruses out there. So these scientists are trying to figure out which ones are the most likely to cause that overreaction that our body has that causes the um, low blood pressure and the premature death and the overwhelming immune response. And those are the ones that they set your immune system up to react to right away so that never gets to that point. There's still those other 16,000 plus flus out there that are not as virulent or as as severe and we all just get through it it's a cold that we get through we don't have to go to the hospital but what happens sometimes is we it'll mutate or we don't we don't pick the right ones and so the numbers are higher in those winters but we also have our ICUs that are geared up to try and support those people and every year we're trying to find a better way to prevent those overreactions of the body so that's why we already had some knowledge as to how to treat these patients. So the flu would be insane killing people if we didn't have the vaccine. And remember, we don't have the vaccine yet. We don't even have proven treatment yet. And that's why they're making us phase into this. So that all the epidemiologists, all the scientists that are responsible for keeping track of that curve, that there's no big spikes in it again. And if there is, why did it happen so that it never happens again? So this is a continual learning process. I'm not telling you lose hope. I'm saying be hopeful for good reason, because right now we are winning and not just because of the flattening of the curve, but because of how low the death numbers we've kept it compared to uh, what it could have been. Scientifically, I believe that there's definitely something to the population density. If you look at how hard New York City was hit compared to California, a major city in California. Yeah. Why is that? I mean, people in California, it's pretty dense, but it's not dense like New York is dense. So the East Coast is much denser. That's where the country started. The roads yeah. are smaller. The buildings are smaller. You have people living on top of each other. In California, you don't have that because there's so much space. So, yeah. yeah. So. 
Thank you for doing this, Amy. I feel like oh, I any, just anytime. was yeah, in like a classroom with you. I was <laughs> really all awesome. Stay safe. You said. Okay. So thank you. Yeah. That was so that was so much fun. I yeah. loved her. She was great. I, I really truly felt like I said, I was a student sitting in a seminar and she, I felt like she was so informational. And it's funny because she yes. just texts. She just texted me actually and said this was so fun and she hopes that it was helpful and she really wanted to give us as much info as possible. She didn't want to offend anyone or give the wrong impression and and I feel like she did not do any of that at all. She was amazing, so helpful. So informative. Yes, and the thing I was thinking about too as soon as she got off is that I love that we can have a space where we can talk about different opinions, different views, different ideas and especially talk with people who might not believe the same thing as some of our listeners. I love that because I think that's what moves our country forward. That may sound a little cliche, but I love that we can do that. And I feel like we had a great episode today with two amazing, two very different doctors who gave people a lot of good information. Absolutely. I I'm so excited how this episode went. It was just so informative and so much information. I think that everyone can relate to and listen to, to help us get through this. Absolutely. And we have a lot of good stuff in store for you guys. Amy touched a little bit on the mental health issue, which is something that's very important for Isabella and I. We've talked Mm -hmm. about that we want to talk to you about. And again, everything we do, we want to never be conjecture. We want to give you hard facts with experts and people who know what they're talking about. And we're excited for all that's going to happen. So what do you say, Isabella? We'll cap it there. All right. We hope that you enjoy it. And this is the Closer Part Podcast. We'll see you next week for episode two.